We're going to be looking um, at Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel. And um, if you've got a Bible, it would be very helpful to turn there. Um, and because we're starting a new series in Matthew tonight, I thought I'd give us just a one-off introduction to the Gospel. Um, we won't have this every week, but just before we sing again, I want to help us get our bearings in Matthew's Gospel. Now, I realize um, we've been preaching through Matthew over the last few years, uh, so for some of you, this may be a recap if you've got very good memories. Um, but we're hoping at Chalmers that people are joining us all the time as a church family, uh, whether from just outside the door in Morningside or elsewhere in the city or students. So, so lots here won't know what's going on in Matthew, um, and I'm sure even those who are here could do with a refresher. So um, you'll also need, as well as the Bible, you need... Um, on the back of the service sheet, there's some sermon notes, and the top of that is actually for this bit, the, the introduction to Matthew. And you'll see I've put a, a couple of big questions that are going on in Matthew. The top one, the book question. If the whole of Matthew's gospel was asking you a question, what would that question be? Here's my punt. The Savior King is here. Will you become a disciple who makes disciples? Matthew in one question. I think this, this is at least a good start. The Savior King is here. Will you become a disciple who makes disciples? You can see there are kind of three parts to that, aren't there? The first part, the Savior King is here. Matthew is a massive announcement of Jesus' arrival. But because the Savior King is here, the question for you, each of you, is will you become a disciple? And then if you've become a disciple, will you be a disciple maker? Those are the three parts to Matthew's big question. But I do want to just show you, I'm not making this up. This is is, um, based on Matthew himself. So we're just going to look at the very start and the very end of the book before we sing and then get on to our actual passage. Um, So turn to the start of Matthew's gospel, um, which is on page 807. But you wouldn't know it, because there's no page number on the page, or the page before. But page 807 is where we're going. The, the first verse of Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew begins with an announcement. Here's chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you've got a family tree. And I guess for many of us, that, that may not seem the most exciting way you could start a book uh, and start the New Testament, but actually it is. If we know our Old Testaments, to say someone that is the son of David and the son of Abraham is a massive thing. It's saying the son of David, that is the king of the whole world, the one who sits on David's throne over all nations, the king is here. And to say someone's the son of Abraham, well, the promises of blessing came to Abraham. So the king is here and hope is here. The savior, the one through whom righteousness by faith will come, as we heard this morning, is here. The king, the savior, the savior king, son of David, son of Abraham, he is here. So it's a massive announcement, the king is here. Um, and, And that's why Matthew dives straight into Christmas As soon as you're through the family tree, chapter 2, the wise men appear. People from another nation who come and admit, you're the king and you're going to die for us. The saviour king. That's the start of the book. And as you go through the book, you learn much, much more about who this king is. Much more evidence about the saviour king. Alongside that nagging question, 
Are you going to become a disciple? Are you going to become a disciple? Are you going to become a disciple? But for those of us who are Christians, Matthew doesn't stop there. So you may be familiar with the end of the book. Let's just turn to the end of the book. Um, Page number is 835, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And let me say, for anyone here who is kind of looking in on the Christian life, Matthew is a fantastic book for you. It it is written to, to provide evidence to trust in Jesus. If you're curious if there's anything kind of true in Christianity, Matthew's a great place to be. But it's also a great place to be for those of us who've been around the block a while and are trusting Jesus. Because Jesus ends with giving us a job. Matthew 28, 28. These are, um, sorry, not 28, 18. These are famous um, verses. So Matthew 28, verse 18. Let me read those to you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We actually knew that from verse 1. Do you remember verse 1? The son of David. David's throne is the one that sits over all the nations. He is the king of the world. We already knew that. But here's the new bit, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are Jesus' final words in Matthew. All authority is given to me. I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of every single person in the world. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That is, if you're a disciple, you need to be involved in disciple-making. It's actually a contradiction in terms to be a disciple and not get involved in disciple-making. Because a disciple just means a follower, a follower of the king, someone who listens to the king. And what does the king say? He says, go and make disciples. Now, let's be clear. I know we all have different gifts, different abilities, different opportunities, different struggles and sicknesses and and, and, struggles. so, so it won't look the same for all of us, and we do this as a team. This is a job given to the church, us as a team. But what we're about is making disciples. We are disciples who make disciples, because that's what King Jesus told us. And Matthew is a book written to get us there, to help us get to the point where we go and make disciples of all nations. And Matthew knows, and the Holy Spirit, who inspired Matthew, knows we need a lot of help with that. I was chatting actually to today, to, today to someone um, about how hard we find um, talking about Jesus to those who don't know him, how hard we find evangelism. Um, uh, they, they were saying it, and then I said it. And they were like, what? Surely not. You, you get paid to do it. <laughs> and I said, well, it's still hard. It is hard to be a disciple maker to all nations, not just to the people like us, but to the people not like us. It's a hard job, and so Matthew has given us 28 chapters of material to get us to that point. Jesus, through the gospel, gives us five big teaching blocks, big kind of training sessions for his disciples. We'll get to one of them in chapter 13 at the end of our series, somewhere in 
October. November, it'll be November. Um, there's a lot of training in here because it takes a lot for our hearts to be turned outwards to become disciple makers. But that's what Matthew is about. So here's the big question. Um, the saviour king is here. Will you become a disciple who makes disciples? That's the mission we have as a church. To pay the debt we could never pay. To wash us white as snow. And Father, having seen um, the power of your son and the power of your gospel to make us clean, we pray as we turn to Matthew that you would also make us compassionate and loving to the world around us. Please help us not just to be disciples, but disciple makers as we study your word. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, that's Matthew, the book as a whole. And just before we read our passage, which will be Matthew 11, you can start to turn there if you want. Matthew 11 is where our passage will be. Let me just give you a feel for Matthew 11 to 13, which is the section we're studying all term. We said that Matthew is announcing the king is here. Will you become a disciple who makes disciples? Here's what I think the, the, section, the question for our section is. It's also there on the outline. Is Jesus Christ really the king of the whole world? when people keep rejecting him? Is Jesus Christ really the king of the whole world when people keep rejecting him? So this is a section of the gospel that's about the reactions Jesus gets, and particularly the negative reactions that Jesus gets. You can see that's an important question, isn't it? If if Matthew's trying to get us to the point where we're so convinced of Jesus' authority... Do you remember what he said? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. If you're convinced of the first thing, then we'll go. If, if Matthew wants us to get there, we've got to be sure he's the king of the world. And can we be sure when so many people keep rejecting him? That's the issue for, for this term, chapters 11 to 13. Um, and I think it, um, it breaks down in a couple of ways. Um, And let me say, I don't actually know kind of how wobbly uh, your faith is. I'm I'm, I'm kind of getting to know individuals of the church, but one of the hard things about preaching to a church you've just arrived in is you haven't had many honest conversations yet. So I don't know, looking around the room, whether any of us are feeling particularly wobbly at the moment in our, our confidence in the Lord Jesus. But I know it happens in churches. There'll be a number of people who are thinking, is this really right? Is this really, is he really the king? And even if we're not thinking it for ourselves, well, if we don't go out making disciples, that may be a symptom that we're not actually rock-solid confident in the Lord Jesus' authority. Does he really have the right to tell everyone in Edinburgh to turn around? Has he really given us the right to do that? Is he really the king of the world? Those are the issues. Um, and, and as I said, I think that question breaks down in a couple of ways, which are the sub-questions on your outline. Two, two ways it, it can, um, the wobble can happen. One is this, how can all these people be wrong? How can so many people, so many clever, serious, highly religious people, people actually in Matthew's Gospel, like the scribes or the Sadducees, the Pharisees, serious people and yet deeply offended by Jesus? Um, how can so many people... 
uh, be wrong. Maybe the evidence actually isn't that persuasive. That's one way the question um, can come about. I think the other, the, the other way the question can happen in our hearts is, how can all these people get away with it? How, how can so many people get away with rejecting Jesus? Are there actually no real consequences for it? How can it be that the most popular swear word in our country is Jesus Christ? If he's the king of the world, wouldn't he do something about that? How can it be that the news quiz or countless comedy programs happily mock Christians and the Lord Jesus and what he teaches? Just think it's funny. And, and, and Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about that. How can it be that ISIS can behead Christians on TV, on, on well, the internet, and, and nothing seems to be happening? How can it be that churches and, and villages full of Christians can be bombed and be burnt and no response from, from the king of the universe, it seems? How can that be? In our country, how can it be that celebrity atheists make, make so um, much fame and money on the back of saying Jesus doesn't even exist, let alone being king of the world. If he really was king of the world, wouldn't you expect him to do something about all the bad reactions? I think that's another aspect of this question. And we need solid answers to that. Matthew knows that, the Holy Spirit knows that, and so Matthew 11 to 13 is going to help us with both those questions. Um, Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force.
for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities that were of his mighty works, where his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom... It would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So did you pick up the notes of rejection through that passage? It's there in verse 6, which is an extra beatitude. Those of you who remember Matthew 5, do you remember all the famous ones? Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, because they'll inherit the earth, blessed are the peacemakers, And then 11 verse 6, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The one who doesn't reject Jesus, who's not scandalized by him. Or at the end of the passage, verses 20 to 24, woe to these towns, woe to you, who was offended by Jesus. Those who wouldn't accept his message, who wouldn't turn around. So we're in a passage about rejection, um, and it's only going to intensify as we go through. Um, so if you look across to 12, chapter 12, verse 14, uh, by that point, the Pharisees are going out to conspire against Jesus, how to destroy him. Um, so the temperature is only going to go up from our passage onwards, but rejection is already the topic, and that's the overarching theme. But interestingly, this whole big chunk starts not with one of Jesus's enemies, not even by the crowd, kind of uncommitted, not sure which way to swing. The first person asking a question in chapter 11 is, did you see? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a believer. In this case, a a bewildered believer. Let me just read that. So verse 1, chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. That's Matthew's way, by the way, of saying we've started a new section when Jesus had finished instructing. It happens all the way through the gospel. But this is the interesting bit, verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? 
That's the question of a bewildered believer. It's the, uh, sorry, question in private. Jesus, uh, are you actually the one? Are you the savior king that we thought you were? Or should we expect someone to come after you to fulfill that job? It's actually the big question we said is, is true of this section. Are you really the king of the world? And it is so striking who's, answer, who's asking it. I, this is actually, for me, this is one of the most astonishing moments in all of the Gospels. The fact that John the Baptist sent this question to Jesus. John the Baptist, who earlier in the Gospel, Matthew 3, had been the one who was pointing to Jesus. The one who was saying, after me, this guy's coming, who, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And then Jesus comes along. The one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is John the Baptist. And even he is bewildered as he sits in prison. I think Matthew is flagging up right at the start that even believers can be confused and have wobbles. Even believers can have doubts when they see the reactions that Jesus is getting. I hope that encourages you. I hope it encourages you that, that this is an eyewitness account that tells the truth. I think it's amazing some of the things that make it into the Gospels, things that could have been airbrushed out. Oh, let's not have that bit about John asking that question. That, that could be embarrassing. Um, but no, the Gospels are, are, are frank and real. They say this is what happened. Eyewitness testimony. That's encouraging. I hope it's also encouraging. Well, he's not just a believer having doubts. He's not even just a Bible teacher having doubts. He's like a prophet, confused at this point, trying to work out what's going on. Which, as an aside, if you are someone here who battles with doubts, and I'm sure there'll be some here, don't think you're the only one, and don't hide them away. Notice what John the Baptist does. He asks a question. He sends word to Jesus. He gets other people involved. I'm confused. What's going on? Give me an answer. And actually, personally, um, so one of the scariest things in my Christian life um, over the years has been battles with doubt. Scary because I'm embarrassed to admit it often, especially as a church worker. And it never helps to hide them away. Get them out into the light and you can get answers. So here's a bewildered believer. He's stuck in prison. He's in prison because Herod, King Herod, locked him up for the message he was pronouncing and he was saying, you've got to turn around, Herod. And Herod said, I don't want to. I'll lock you up. That's why he's in prison, and he's having a, a wobble moment. Is Jesus really the one? So what's Jesus' answer from verse 3 onwards? And you'll see on the outline, this is our first point, and we'll spend most of our time here this evening. Um, Jesus' answer is that there is ample evidence to show that Jesus really is the promised Savior King of the world. There is plenty of evidence. So let me read from verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus here actually is doing a bit of a summary for us. Um, it's really helpful. It's, it's a summary of chapters 8 and 9. And you can go and read them if you want in your own time. But chapters 8 and 9, all these things have happened. Um, so uh, 8 verse 3, there was a leper who begged to be clean. And he was healed fully by Jesus' touch. In chapter 9 verse 6, 
There was a paralytic um, healed when Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. In 925, there um, was the daughter of um, a ruler, uh, Jairus, we know from other gospels of the synagogue, um, a ruler um, who was dead and Jesus raised to life. And then straight after that, two blind men come and are healed and a mute person is given speech again. Jesus says, go and tell John what you have just heard and seen through chapters 8 and 9. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And the point is, Jesus is doing things that only the promised saviour king could do. The evidence, seen by these crowds, seen by eyewitnesses, seen by Matthew, was plain. In fact, by this point of the gospel, the only way the enemies can try and kind of deny this particular evidence is not by denying the miracles, because they're clearly happening in front of everything, everyone. So they're now saying, okay, he's got supernatural power, but it must be demonic power. That's their way out. Jesus says, just look at the evidence. But actually, the way he describes this evidence is supposed to get bells ringing for John the Baptist. John the Baptist is someone who knows his Old Testament. So does Jesus. And Jesus is describing this in Old Testament language. Um, So we're going to do some turning back in our Bibles. Um, Page 595. 595 in our Bibles, which is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35, page 595. Isaiah 35, and we'll read verse, or we'll read from verse 4 on page 595. It's a fantastic passage, and it says this. It says, verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then, verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Keep a finger in that passage because we're going to need that um, later. But do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, you know that promise from Isaiah 35, John. Come on, John, you you have your quiet times in Isaiah. It is happening on the ground. It is being witnessed. People are seeing the deeds of the promised king on earth right now. Blind eyes are opened, lame legs not broken, deaf hearing, mute singing. Tell John what's going on. It's unmistakable. God told us what to expect when the king arrived, and it is happening. The evidence points to Jesus really being the king. Keep that finger in Isaiah 35 and turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, page 620. And at this point, I was going to apologize for having you put so many fingers in different bits of the Bible and turn so many pages. Um, But actually, I don't want to apologize because... Matthew is a fulfillment gospel. You'll remember that if you were here right at the start. 
This, was written, this happens so as to fulfill what was written in the prophet so-and-so. Happens again and again and again through Matthew. It's a fulfillment gospel. He's trying to say the promised king is here. So, of course, we need to look at the promises to understand the king. You have to look at the Old Testament to understand Jesus in the gospels. And so Isaiah chapter 61, page 620, um, and I'll just read um, verse 1 for the moment. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus also quotes that verse. So he says, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the mute are speaking, the deaf are hearing, and good news is being preached to the poor. That is, it's not just the actions Jesus is doing, it's the things he's saying which fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. He is preaching gospel to the poor. And incidentally, if, if, if um, you're one of those people who thinks, well, maybe I'd believe in Jesus if I could go back and watch the miracles. Um, we can't go back and watch the miracles. The nature of history is it happens in a certain place and time. But you can listen to the teaching because it's all the way through Matthew. You can actually listen to Jesus' teaching. Have a look at it. And see that no one's taught like this before. It's an extraordinary teacher, the spirit-equipped preacher to the poor, Jesus. Jesus says, the deeds you see and the teaching you hear all point to the fact that I really am the promised king of the world. But here's the nagging question, and this is the reason I'm asking you to keep your fingers in all these pages. Just look back to Isaiah 61 for a moment. Isaiah 61. So we've got this great verse, which is the verse Jesus quotes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So you imagine John the Baptist is reading this in his cell. He's probably doing it from memory. I guess he didn't have a Bible, but he's thinking about this passage. And then he reads on. Let me keep reading that verse. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This is the nagging question in our passage, and I really think it was John's issue. It was what got him so confused. If Jesus is the promised one, where is the day of vengeance? John is sitting in a prison. And the promised one was supposed to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The king was supposed to come and deal with God's enemies. Herod is a person who did not listen to John's warning and locked him up. Later he'll behead him. And and John's sitting in Herod's prison thinking, okay, Jesus, if you're the king, why is Herod free and me in prison? Do you see that? How is it that way around, Jesus? How are you not dealing with the people who reject you? Just turn back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. So Jesus quotes verses 5 and 6. Remember those great verses about the eyes of the blind being opened? Just let me read verse 4 again and see what's missing. Isaiah 35, 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. 
He will come and save you. In Isaiah, God saves his people and judges his enemies. In fact, the way he saves his people is by judging the enemies, getting rid of them. And yet Jesus is the king, but the enemies are still at large. Jesus is here, but he's being rejected, and they're getting away with it. Herod has ignored the warning, ignored the message, and he's still fine, while John is locked up in prison. Do you see that? Do you see, actually, so of those two um, section questions, I talked about those two sub-questions, John's problem is not oh, how can all these people be wrong? How, can, how come Christians are in a minority? Maybe, maybe the majority got it right. Maybe I should change my views. It's not that at all. He knows that everyone's wrong. That's why he stood in the desert and said, turn around, turn around, turn around. He doesn't mind being in a minority. The thing he has a problem with is, is how come Jesus isn't doing anything about all this rebellion, all this rejection, all this blasphemy? People have started to say that Jesus has a demon You don't say that to the king of the world, do you? John's wondering, what is going on? Why isn't judgment falling? But Jesus says back to him, look at the evidence. I am the savior king. I'm definitely the one. I am the one Isaiah promised. Let's move on. We'll come back to that question, but let's move on to verse 7, where Jesus turns to the crowds Jesus turns to the crowds in verse 7, and he wants to show them that it's not just the evidence of the deeds and the teaching, even the evidence of John the Baptist um, shows that Jesus really is God, the promised one. Um, So follow it through with me. Verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That is a kind of wishy-washy politician who just says whatever the focus group want to say, a yes man? No, that wasn't John the Baptist. Was he a man dressed in fine, soft clothing, just in it for the money and the easy life? No. Unlike Herod or the other self-serving leaders of the day, John the Baptist, he wasn't flashy and he wasn't flimsy. He was a proper prophet. He genuinely had something to say, says Jesus. The reason you made the journey to hear him is because he had a message. And verse 10, this was his message. This is what he was to do. This is the one of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John's job was to announce God himself was coming. That means, verses 11 and 12, that the kingdom of heaven really is breaking into this world right now says Jesus. John was the greatest born of woman to this point. He was the greatest prophet there's ever been because he was the last prophet. He was the, the signpost prophet, the one who said, here he is, pointing directly to God in the flesh. But actually, now the kingdom of heaven is here, end of verse 11, even the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. John was a signpost Jesus is the real deal, the king. Come to Jesus and you join the kingdom of heaven, a greater privilege than even John the Baptist had. So verse 13, the whole 
Old Testament, the prophets and the law were all building up to John's moment. And he sat on the, on the threshold, the moment when uh, Jesus would turn up, God himself in flesh. He was, therefore, this Elijah figure. Now, those of us who, who um, aren't familiar with the Old Testament might be thinking, Elijah? What? But we've got one more place to turn. One more place, Malachi this time. Um, Malachi, which is the last book in our Old Testament. So it's not far to turn, it's just uh, page 803. This is Malachi, our last cross-reference, and one of the most striking ones. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. This is what Jesus wants us to look at. That's why he used the word Elijah. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's John the Baptist, says Jesus. And he will turn, verse 6, the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last of the prophets before John Malachi here, God issues an announcement of what the plan is. I'm going to send a messenger then I'm going to come. The messenger will be like a new Elijah figure, a new prophet. What's he going to say? He's going to say, turn around before it's too late. And if you don't turn around, well, I'll come with destruction. Can you see the nagging question getting louder? Malachi said, Isaiah said, that when the promised king comes, if people don't turn around, they'll be destroyed. There will be destruction. When God turns up, for anyone who's not righteous, there'll be destruction. That was Malachi. And Elijah has come. This John the Baptist messenger figure has come. Jesus, God in the flesh, has come. So what's going on? How can people get away with ignoring Jesus? Or ignoring John. Do you see the issue? Well, the answer to that issue, and we'll see this through our chapters, is that we're in a period of delay. There is a period of grace. A period where the church is sent out to make disciples of all nations before that righteous day of judgment, the day of vengeance falls. In his great kindness, Jesus has come to proclaim a day of vengeance, Isaiah 61, but not to bring it, Isaiah 35. He's issuing the warning now. He's not bringing it right down. That's why Herod is still at large, locking up John the Baptist. That's why the Pharisees are allowed to blaspheme him to his face. It's actually why in Edinburgh there are thousands of people using Jesus Christ as a swear word. God's extraordinary kindness, not wanting people to repent. He's patient, slow with you, giving time. So Christians, don't get wobbly the fact that So much rejection of Jesus seems to carry on unchecked, unpunished. 
Not because there's no punishment. God never breaks a promise. Isaiah 35 cannot be broken. Malachi 4 cannot be broken. It's going to happen. It just is going to happen. But there's a delay, a period of grace. There's time to turn to the king. It's the glorious offer of the gospel. Forgiveness is available. But finally, point three. Just because there's a delay doesn't mean people will get away with it if they refuse. Just because there's a delay doesn't mean people will get away with it if they refuse. The point is this. Those who stubbornly refuse to listen to John and Jesus will not get away with it ultimately. So Jesus, um, having pointed out the evidence, my, my deeds, my teaching, and John the Baptist, this massive signpost to the king, to God himself, he then turns in verse 16 to start to rebuke the crowd who refused to listen. Um, and really only since becoming a parent have I started to understand um, this little illustration he gives. Um, so I don't know if you've met my daughter Grace yet. Um, she's coming up to two. Um, it seems like she's a wonderful daughter and we love her to bits, but tantrums are just beginning to build up as we get to, to two years old. Um, and sometimes you just can't win. So you say to Grace... Um, Hey, hey, let's, let's have a kind of dance party. Let's put some music on. Let's kind of charge around, sing some songs. Let's make a lot of noise. And she says, no, 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 no. I want to be quiet. Shh, shh, shh. She, she only really makes noises, but you can kind of work out. She's saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to dance. I don't want to dance. I just want to be quiet in my bed. I just want to be quiet. She's okay, okay, fine, fine. We'll do it your way. Let's be quiet. Let's just have some nice, quiet time. Um, maybe we'll sing a lullaby. We'll play Sleeping Lions. And at that point, she says, no, 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 I don't want to be quiet. And you're like, well, come on, Grace. You're just being unreasonable. Jesus says the crowd around him were like toddlers. They were just being unreasonable. Verse 17, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We switched it round and sang a dirge. You did not mourn. Jesus' point is, you don't listen to John, you make up reasons for that, and you don't listen to me. Two massive signposts. (laughs) I mean, Isaiah's description of the king, it's a pretty extraordinary description, isn't it? Like blind eyes, lame walking. It's hard to miss that. The evidence is pretty stark when someone is raised to life, but the crowds aren't listening. John, this idea that there'll be this extraordinary messenger, a prophet, the first prophet for 400 years, turns up, and points to the the coming one, God himself, which is exactly what Malachi would say, and still the crowds won't listen. And Jesus says, this is childish, it's unreasonable. You're being contrary, you're just finding excuses not to listen. So verse 18. It's interesting, John and Jesus were even different styles of evangelism. So John was the... um, hunger strike in the desert, shouting, you brood of vipers, turn or burn. That was kind of John the Baptist. He was pretty stark. Jesus eats with people, has parties, happily chats, eats food and drink, does amazing, generous miracles. Two quite contrasting styles. And Jesus says, verse 18, John came, neither eating nor drinking. And they say of him, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking. 
And they say of him, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying it's not justified, this rejection. It's contrary, it's unreasonable. It's refusing to even look at the evidence because the evidence is clear. And so off of the back of that, verse 20, he says, woe. Woe to these towns who had all the evidence in front of them and refused to turn and trust Jesus, refused to become disciples. It's a terrifying passage. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, towns that were judged in the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I wonder how the Lord Jesus would address post-Christian Edinburgh, or Scotland, or the UK, or the West. You've heard a lot of the evidence. Jesus has been, and he's shown himself. John has been, and he's pointed to Jesus. And yet you refuse. So then, let's conclude. The Old Testament prophets made it very clear that when the king of the world comes, justice will come which will mean judgment for those who refuse to turn. That's really, really clear in the Old Testament. We've turned to three passages. We could turn to a hundred more. John the Baptist was confused because he thought, why isn't that happening with Jesus? Why am I stuck in prison and Herod going free? And the answer is, Jesus is giving time to his enemies. Jesus is waiting till he can die for his enemies, rise and send out his church to make disciples of all nations. In his extraordinary grace, Jesus has offered a way to be blessed. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. As we heard this morning, blessed is the one who trusts by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, to be okay, to be clean enough for God to be right in his sight. But it is a stark choice. There's two options in this passage. There's verse 6 or there's verse 20 to 24. Blessed are you if you're not offended by Jesus. Woe to you if you refuse to listen to Jesus. It is that stark. Matthew wants people to know that so that they become disciples. Turn around and trust Jesus. But Matthew also wants us to know that so that we become disciple makers. It's not too late. The day of vengeance hasn't fallen. And so let me pray for us that we would be a church family that spreads this glorious offer around the nations. Father in heaven, we Thank you for your kindness. You were kind to warn humanity through Isaiah 
that there would be a day of reckoning, a day of justice, a day of vengeance. You were kind through Malachi to warn that people would need to turn around when you turned up. You were kind as you sent John the Baptist this massive signpost to Jesus saying he's the one. And you were so kind in sending not just prophets but your son to warn us and supremely your son to lay down his life for us that we might, we who are, who are wretched, who are vilest offenders might be made clean at his cross. And Father, we do pray for us as a church family that you would give us such um, conviction that the Lord Jesus is the King of all the world, that he's the only hope for all the world. Such conviction of that, that we would grow to be disciple makers. You know our hearts, you know how hard we find it, you know how scared we can be of speaking about you boldly in public. But Lord, Please strengthen us and change us. We pray these weeks in Matthew's gospel would help us not to wobble when we see the rejection that Jesus gets, but instead to marvel that that you would put up with it. Such is your grace and compassion on the world and the people you've made. Please, Lord, shape our hearts in that way, and please would this glorious offer of forgiveness ring out from this church family and from churches all across Edinburgh. We pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.